This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. If you've only just tuned in, it is my responsibility to tell you that the Weekend Variety Wireless will not be continuing next year. Yeah, real sad news for me. Don't have any doubt about that. Um, but we'll soldier on until the end. It's all over the news, you know, what, what's uh, happening. So I'll just leave it there and won't waste time explaining more. You can uh, go and find out uh, in print, I'm sure. Tomorrow night, oh, it is the anniversary, the 18th of, of November, is the anniversary of uh, one of New Zealand's lesser known, but probably one of our worst civil disasters. It was the shipwreck of the Cospatrick. Oh dear, it's grim. Up to this point, they've been putting the bodies over the side, but eventually the decision is taken by unanimous agreement that they, they really just have to start living off the dead. And so a couple of couple of the bodies are butchered and uh, they get what fluid they can from the bodies as well. They drink their blood, basically. They drink their blood. And, of course, the blood doesn't flow in a dead body, so they need to create... They need to cut the, the dead flesh and then tuck on it to, to get fluid out. Good. Yeah, that'll be nice just before you... Uh fall asleep at midnight tomorrow evening and tomorrow night Sam Hunt uh, Sam Hunt is our read, a, uh, read me a poem person uh, he remembers all the poems just in his head and we get a bonus the first poem he can remember ever writing and he does he's sure he remembers the first poem he wrote when did I first start scribbling? oh hang on when did I first start scribbling yeah here we go pardon me when did I first start scribbling them down? The first one I know of, Graham, is um, after my mother died in 2004. I was put in charge of the papers, you know, letters and things, you know, all that. Mm. And there was this poem written by Sam Hunt huh? in 19, uh, 1952. So that's the first one I'm aware of. Shall I say it's really short? You were six? Seven. <laughs> yeah, you'll hear it tomorrow night. Okay, uh, new sport and... Oh, no, sorry, we've had new sport and weather. Um, after the commercial break, pardon me. Um, at the movies with James Crute, the works of the Cohen brothers, and um, this Buster Scruggs thing that they're putting on. Man, the Cohen brothers are good, aren't they? And uh, later on, Max Cryer answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. Several names for gypsies. And what is a chav? We shall find out, I'm sure. Movies next with James Crew. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. Here he is, James Crute, cinemaphile. He spends time locked in a dark room so you don't have to waste uh, an hour and a half or however long a movie might be, if it's a dud. Or the other very important factor, if it's a cracker, you don't want to miss it. Hi, James. G'day, Graham. How are you? Good. So let's talk about the Cohen brothers. They've got Buster Scruggs. 
Well, look, this is this is part of the great trend, really, and, and in the next month or two, it's really going to ramp up. This is something that we should be watching in the cinema. It's on Netflix! Right. This, this is a bit of an odd one. So this is a project that the Coen brothers have been working on for 25 years. Uh, it's six different stories of the American frontier. Um, it started out as a movie project, then became a Netflix kind of mini-series project, and then ended up as a movie on Netflix. They kind of scaled it back in the end. Oh, okay. So it's essentially six sort of 20-minute-each stories, tonally very different, but, but with a kind of theme of uh, story, life is short, but stories last forever. I mean, they're kind of almost, in some cases, brutal tales of life on the frontier. Yeah. Um, you know, when life was, what, nasty, brutish and short, as people have once said of various time periods in human history. Mm. Um, and, but it's got that lovely Coen Brothers, quirky characters, nutty names, um, ultra-violence at, at unexpected moments and just that pitch-black humour. Here's, here's a little yeah. bit from, from the trailer. I don't know if it'll give you much of an idea. It's only 30 seconds long, so don't cry. People are so easily distracted. So I'm the distractor with a little story. Bang. People can't get enough of them. Because, well, they connect the stories to themselves, I suppose. Bang. And we all love hearing about ourselves. So long as the people in the stories are us, but not us. This will tell the tale. I'm Buster, Buster Scruggs. You're shooting iron work. Damn trailers and they're banging. They've always got a bang, don't they? But anyway, that's a taste of Buster Scruggs. <laughs> Look, uh, you know, it, it is the kind of thing I would have loved to have seen on a big Vista screen, and I guess a lot of people have massive screens at home and home cinemas and all that kind of thing these days. Yeah, but, actually, I, um, a friend of mine, Chris Knox, he's got, a, uh, yeah. he's got a bloody cinema in his lounge. It folds down. It goes... It makes a noise when it comes down. And then it's a, it's, a, it's a cinema in his lounge. It's bloody marvellous. Yeah, and, and look, uh, you know, cinemas are trying to up the game by putting sort of essentially lazy boys into all their things now, you know, the big black recliners everywhere and um, offering you food if you want to have food and that kind of thing. Turn it into the, you know, tennis club's uh, monthly night at someone's home sort of thing. But, yeah, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about all this. Look, I just love that, that these films are, are being able to be seen and there's a sort of democratisation about that. Um, you know, we had been getting to the point where, you know, movies by the Coen brothers weren't getting cinema releases, you know, yeah. and, and there are, if they ended up with the wrong distributor, we wouldn't get to see them, and so you'd end up having to wait for DVDs. So now we can see them at the same time as the rest of the world um, and, and go to town and, and have our opinions. Yeah. And, and look, look, they are one of the most lauded of directorships, though, aren't they? They shouldn't have any trouble getting anything anywhere. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's the kind of thing, and, and I and it's now the fact. Well, I guess the problem is now with the Hollywood model is their kind of films are the ones that are trickiest to make. Oh. Um, you know, they're the ones that are the hardest to finance because they come without a kind of known franchise quality. They are the franchise, yeah. aren't they? And and so while they have a certain cachet value, they have a kind of cap on how much money they're going to make someone. Right, because um, it doesn't matter. They also have, have costly stars that A, want to get involved. I mean, you only need to look at, and I guess there's a whole different controversy and reason why 
um, this person I'm about to mention isn't getting his film made anymore, but you look at Woody Allen. You know, he used to be a banker that he would have a film every year and it would come out. It, now, I don't think we'll see another one from him, essentially. Well, is it because he doesn't have a character and a funny suit and superpowers? Well, that's kind of a little bit it. I mean, maybe he should do that. And, and of course, he did a series for Amazon Prime. That was kind of before we, you know, Amazon Prime had gone truly global, so it kind of disappeared. But, you know, for these established but older names who who are relying on a particular audience, it's getting harder and harder. Um, I mean, there is still that audience that older audience who go to the cinema and they're the ones who are being pushed to more and more. But unless it's a bank heist movie about the Hatton Guard robbery for about the sixth time in 12 months, um, it, it seems to struggle to, to find, you know, get a cinema release as well. Uh, far out. Interesting, interesting times we live in. I love the Coen you know, brothers. Yeah, exactly. But Netflix have, uh, uh, you know, in the next sort of six weeks, they've potentially got one of the Oscar frontrunners screening, and I'm still not sure whether that's going to get a release in cinemas before it debuts on Netflix. That's uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. They've got a Sandra Bullock horror movie called Bird Box. They've got Andy Serkis's big-budget CGI fill or motion capture-filled version of The Jungle Book, Mowgli. Uh-huh. You would have thought that was a cinematic banker. Yeah, yeah. But Netflix. All right, that's yeah, that's interesting. I would look at. Let's just look at what the Cohen brothers have done. Sure. They're not yeah. no shortage of Academy Awards of appreciation from uh, the, their peers, at least. And surely people flocked to Fargo, didn't they? What a thing! Yeah, and, and of course Fargo now has sort of morphed into this TV series. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, well, so, you know, their kind of storytelling, I guess, now is more at home on television. Mm. You know, that that kind of quirky sense of space and place, uh, you know, stories that now on television are able to be given a bit more time to breathe. Mm. No Country for Old Men, how well did that do? Exactly, their remake of True Grit. You know, they've, they've proved that the Western in particular is a genre that they excel at, but they also have that kind of crime sort of background. And, and it's, the, it's, that, it's more an ability to create something that's dramatic, that does have action but isn't just action for action's sake, but also has black humour at its heart. And they just seem to find that balance perfectly. Mm. Plus, they discover a whole lot of actors that aren't necessarily the mainstream. And sure, they have Clooney. Sure, they've had Matt Damon. Sure, they've had Brad Pitt. But, you know, the likes of Tim Blake Nelson, who plays Buster Scruggs. Um, You know, Zoe Kazan, who's also in this. Tom Waits uh, plays quite brilliant prospector in this. All these people with sort of character faces. You know, Buscemi, of course, mm. who, who wouldn't be your sort of traditional-looking Hollywood star, but he's a fabulous actor. Mm. And, and these were the guys who sort of helped discover these more quirky guys and give them the roles that really showcases their skills. You can look way back, actually, in the 1980s, Raising <laughs> Arizona. That's right, Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter. How old I mean, were they then? Five? <laughs> well, Nicholas Cage has always looked old, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and, and Holly Hunter has always been kind of mature in a way. Um, look, you know, and they've also done a terrific job of creating quite brilliant roles for women. I mean, Frances McDormand, you know, Fargo 
without that, she certainly wouldn't have had the career that she's managed. And I don't think we would have seen a film like um, Three Billboards Outside Missouri, uh, oh, yes. Missouri either this year. You know, that, yeah. that kind of is a direct line back to Fargo, really. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're great storytellers and the you can always tell, if it's a Cohen movie, you can kind of tell, can't you? You can. There's just that, that ear for dialogue, that uh, you know, way with names and just all those crazy kind of different things. Mm, all right. Um, oh, how's anything else you want to add before we talk about football? Uh, no, now you had a question last week. Oh, I'm yes. Sure we're interested about this whole frame rate business with yeah. Peter Jackson. Yeah, early oldie, oldie days movies. Yeah, now, of course, one of the things with this, I mean, the, the question was regarding, you know, why hasn't anyone thought of slowing down this stuff before? Why do they play it so everyone's speed, sped up? It looks yeah. silly. Why on earth would you want that result? Surely it's not beyond the rounds of human endeavour and engineering to actually have it play at the normal speed. To be fair, most of the time that we've watched this stuff, it's been on a television. And so television plays it at 25 frames per second, and they seem to be loath to slow it down. Um, look, pretty much with... Uh, my, I, I enlisted uh, the, uh, the help here of uh, one of the uh, projectionist gurus, a man who knows projection, projection inside out and is still working, yeah. uh, Gary Goodschlag in uh, Dunedin, and, and he was saying they could do it. With digital, they could make a frame rate on a projector, you know, that, that could be that speed, but they just he thinks that it's just because it would cost a bit of money to do it, and it would just be a gimmick to try, you know? No, it's a like, gimmick to have it sped up. It's weird. <laughs> well, I guess that's what it is at the moment, so to slow it down would would cost too much money. <laughs> he, he compared it to 3D. Why not which, capture... Which, as we know, has now died for the third time. Nah, Pretty I'm much. Whoa, I'm not buying this. I just almost <laughs> fell off my chair. I'm not buying this at all. Why on earth, in the day, would you want things looking faster than what they were? Surely the idea of showing moving pictures was to reflect what you filmed, for God's sake. Did but someone again, say, no, that's no good, let's speed it up? Yeah, but again, in the early days, and and they wanted the cinema to be something that was unreal because people were worried that it looked too real and people would get freaked out of their minds. Oh, no, God, for <laughs> God's sake, really? Yes. There's a famous thing of the train speeding towards the camera. That's what, I mean, they deliberately made it, well, you know, it, they, they left it at, at the, you know, l being different speed to what humans thought it would be because it made it seem unreal. Why didn't they slow it down? <laughs> I don't know. It's not as exciting oh, if you slow it down, is it? I was channeling Bob Jones there for a second. Ah, oh, for God's sake. Oh, why don't they have it at the normal speed? I just, surely... Not beyond the rounds of human. Anyway, um, okay, no, I don't get it. All yeah. right, uh, your favourite projectionist, what's his name again? Gary Goodschlag. He Gary Goodschlag. He was named one of the, was it New Zealand Motion Picture Distributor Association Man Legacy Award winner last year? Or oh, like marvellous, because I, I know, you know, it is, it, you pick your projectionist and you see whatever he's playing because you can tell. Can't you? A good slug movie when he's on? It's like a <laughs> DJ at a club. Not playing their own music, but it's the DJ that matters, isn't it? It's the Absolutely. projectionist. Yep.
And I'm sure they used to have fun in the old days with those slides. You remember when they had slides for the advertisers before the, the trailers played, etc.? Do so I remember? You... My sister was employed colorizing them, and we had right stacks of them at home. Um, they, they were, you know, big square things on glass. And yep. Yeah. Uh, amazing. And there was always a terrible voice, you know, there was a voice track to match, and you had to line it up properly, you know, shift the slide at the time that the voice track moved at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And you used to play a game, when I was a kid, you used to play a game, you know, if there were three or more of you, you know, the next slide would be yours, and the one you wanted to avoid in Dunedin was lose toilet rentals. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so where's Gritslide playing this weekend? He's got oh, a gig. Wow. Uh, he'll be he'll be at Rialto Dunedin like he always is. Oh, the picture palace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the St James. Get along, Dunedin folks. It's worth visiting Dunedin just to see a good slide movie. <laughs> Damn it. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. How's the football going? Oh well, you know, this time of year, watching from afar, uh, am now still am now eligible for all Masters uh, over 45 uh, competitions. Mm -hmm. Just putting that out there. Um, look, you know, it's been fascinating. Of course, we've got the Nations League, which is this confusing European Championship thing on at the moment. Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand it, but apparently Germany are playing the Netherlands on Tuesday morning, and one of them's going to get relegated if they don't win. So relegated to, to where? South America. Yeah, having to play Latvia and second lot of nations. Oh, it's some sort of Brexit for football. Yeah, pretty much. It sounds really weird. I don't understand it at all. And I see that Jurgen Klinsmann's son is going to be playing for the USA in games now. Oh, I just meta football, really. Um, why is there the European Championship? There's the Champions League. That's it. Everything else is a dud, isn't it? Well, I guess it, I guess it keeps people interested in between World Cup games. Otherwise, you have to have Wayne Rooney testimonial friendlies, don't you, to oh, keep England no, in the No, it's as if there's not enough football. The Europeans, it's it's like you the be, oh, you're not the best teams. We'll have a consolation plate competition. I feel sorry for the Swiss who had to play Qatar in a friendly. There are going to be a whole lot of teams who have to play Qatar in the next while. Oh, really? And as for, as for FIFA, that Infantino wants to put 48 teams in Qatar now to try and shift it throughout the Gulf so the Saudis can have a piece of the action as well. When's it supposed to start, this godforsaken World Cup in 58 degrees? Uh, December 2022, I think oh. it is. So, but I think qualifying has to start in the middle of next year, so they've got to sort their stuff out. But we might get a free ticket, you see. Oh. All right, December. All right, so it's, it's, I could play Ian Holloway, be... couldn't I? <laughs> He's not happy with it. <laughs> OK, I think I might. Um, OK, that's Cinema and Football Bonus with James Crute. Thank you so much, good sir, and we'll talk again next week. Will do. Well, obviously, the important that we'll have to change when we play our tournament. It's so vital that they have our tournament that belongs to the world, and I think I'm a world person, aren't I? I come from England. So we'll just change everything because your weather's really hot. Because we can't play it when we should do. Brilliant. If it was me, heads would roll, and I know which heads it would be. And I'd love to do it, to be fair. <laughs> Why don't they sack Seth Blatter and all of them lot, particularly Mr. Platini? I know he was a good player, but he ain't very good at what he does, I don't think. In fact, I think he's useless. You can quote me on that. I honestly do. I think it's useless. How can you do that? Why don't we move the tournament? Because it's going to be too hot, Mr. Blatter. What? I mean, come on. What's going on? Are they... F is that serious? Are you deadly serious that we... 
So what happens to our football then and everybody else's football that's playing for it? Well, we stop for a while, do we? <laughs> oh, genius. Absolute magnificent, isn't it? What happened to the um, air-conditioned indoor arenas then? Bit too expensive, 25 of them, was it, or what? Don't start me on that. <laughs> Seriously, the it has gone crazy. I think the world has gone completely on its head. Happy Christmas. You wait till I get home, I'm going to tell my turkeys that ain't, don't worry, it ain't Christmas, we're moving it. <laughs> it's all right, you got some respite, you know. <laughs> oh, I've had a word with FIFA and we're going to move Christmas, it's no problem! Fantastic! You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of... Max Cryer, here he is. Hello, Max. Oh, good morning. Good evening. Enjoying spring? Is it spring? Feels like it. Yes. Yes, there's a song, isn't there? It must be spring. Yes. Is there? Uh, and I think there's also a piece of music called Spring Symphony. Oh, there are a lot of spring things. <laughs> Perhaps you could we could play. start with Vivaldi, couldn't we? We could indeed. All right. Now, the word of the week, Max, is decile, D-E-C-I-L-E. The word came into English through French, and it originates, of course, in Latin, decem, decem, meaning ten. Uh, in New Zealand, the term decile has been used since 1995, in order to give an estimate of the socio-economic level of a district or community. The resultant figure out of 10 is calculated from various data elicited about the households in the district, such as their income, the relationship structure of the householders, how many bedrooms, the crowding or non-crowded, the educational history of the house dwellers, the occupations of the dwellers from high income to low, and how many people in the area receive benefit payments relating to domestic purposes, unemployment, sickness or invalidism. Invalidism. Now, from that data, a figure between 1 and 10 is attached to, and wait for this, is attached to the area studied. And from that it can be deduced from what backgrounds a school in the area draws its pupils. Now, it has become unfortunate that reporting on the matter often puts the decile number of a district next to the word school, which tends to create an image which isn't necessarily correct. A school in a low-income area can, in fact, be vibrant and positive and popular. But if it's described as Decile 9 School, then that's somewhat deceptive. It comes as a, as a put-down. It's actually the district which is Decile 9 and not the school. Yeah, good point. So last year, the then-government last year announced plans to initiate a new system for reasons of funding, targeting where situations of children described as at risk are to be found. Whether the use of the word decile will continue hasn't been made clear. I rather hope it isn't, or if there's some way of, other way of describing a school without necessarily giving you the impression that the school is of the same level of behaviour and income as the district in which it's situated, because that simply isn't true. Right. I understand, you know, no matter what you do, there will probably be private schools. But I really do feel as though it beholden on the state to offer you, no matter, a kid, no matter what background you come from, that you get 
the same decent sort of education as someone that from Remuera or something? Well, I, I, Why I, not? I seem to think that that actually is the case. The well, government. well, there's deciles then. Um, because the, the decile is a subject regarding the people who live in the district. Yeah, it's such a pejorative though, not, isn't not it? The it seems like it. Not the learning that goes on in the school. Right, right. There's an assumption that, oh, that school's a hellhole. It's, it's a journalistic ease to, yeah. put, to say just uh, school decile 10 when they mean school in a district decile 10. Yeah. It's yeah. two different things. Oh, it's a very good point, Max. And well made. Thank you. All right. If you want to ask Max anything to do with the English language, words, their origin and meaning, and that sort of guff. Oh, there's another one. What? Guff. Guff. <laughs> Can we leave that for the time being? Yeah, sure. Are you still working on spouse from last week? <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, that sort of guff. Uh, you can go to the Weekend Variety Wireless website. There's the email form clearly displayed. And if you just ask a question on the Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page, same applies. I pass it on to Max, and then he gets into the books and more besides. Now, names for gypsies. I remember this coming through from Facebook, and I didn't understand the question. Oh, no, the question was... I understood it. Um, the listener had heard a word which described gypsies and just wanted to know why and where the word came from and everything. We do that quite a lot, Graham. We study where words come mm. from. And the word that the listener heard was... It's a mission statement, actually, this program. <laughs> it is. So the word in question, uh, quite literally in question, the listener asked, what does the word pikey... How does the word pikey come to mean a gypsy? Well, it's quite true that word does... Uh, apply to gypsies. I doubt we'll ever hear the word in New Zealand because I have the impression that we haven't any real-life genuine gypsies travelling around this country and it's that which characterises genuine gypsies, that they travel. They have no permanent abode, they move from place to place according to the seasons, the festivals, etc. Now the word... There's an ethnic origin too, isn't there? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's one of the whole big points. The word gypsy itself is of curious origin um, what are known elsewhere as genuine gypsies are believed to have originated centuries ago in India and they're very family conscious and bloodline conscious. Genuine gypsies started arriving in Britain about 500 years ago and there grew an erroneous belief that they'd come from Egypt. You see, there was no TV news in those days, so they couldn't be put mm. this... They people, didn't have passports. People got an idea and it spread around. The People believed they came from Egypt, hence the name Gypsies. But there are several other names which refer to them. They're called Romanes, Travellers, Gitanos, Zingaros, Nomads, Gypsies, and Didikai. Whoa! Yes, our own Billy T. James recorded an album of a song cycle composed by Gary Davern about a gypsy girl known as a, a Didikai. It's <laughs> one of the words. Now, there are also some rather put-down derogatory terms to describe gypsies used by people who disapprove of any lifestyle different from their own. And those people who are easy to offend refer to gypsies as vagrants, tinkers, vagabonds and transients. Plus the word the listener heard, pikey. Now, pikey is a slang term used in England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. It's perceived as a pejorative, a slur. It carries the inference of a pikey being a lower-class person and probably coarse and disreputable. And it's heard as a put-down description of people otherwise known as travellers or gypsies. The word pikey might be, we're not sure, might be derived from pike, which for several centuries meant highway and is still heard occasionally in the word 
turnpike, which is a, a road with a toll on it. Another possible etymology is that the word pikey derives from the old English word picker, meaning to, to peck, to pick or to steal, which itself went out of use, but it might remain as the background to pikey. We simply don't know. But either way, picker and pike carries this image of travelling along roads, which gypsies do a great deal of. And picker carries a vibe of dishonesty and stealing. So however it arose, the slang word pike or pikey is a put-down. It refers to lower-class people regarded as coarse, disreputable, and to anyone perceived as following a lifestyle of itinerant unemployment and travel. Now, that's a rather unkind way of looking at gypsy life, but it is occasionally used as, uh, as a point of view. Now, obviously, this word the listener heard, pikey, is not well-received among gypsies. It's considered quite rightly as a slur, although it has been recorded that English genuine Romani gypsies have been known to use the term when referring to other gypsies not regarded by them as being of genuine Romani descent. This happens in rap music. <laughs> Is that so? Yeah. <laughs> and shall we say the African-American community in the United States? Yes. Oh, you mean looking down or sort of describing someone unkindly who is of different heritage to No, the, the, of the same heritage. Of the same? Mm, yeah. When in Britain the word... The N-word. The what? The, oh, the N-word. Yes, forget the N-word. Now N -word. we've yes. been hypnotised by the United States of America. We have to say the N-word. The N-word. Mm. Well, we're talking about the P-word, pikey, yeah. which has loosened its well, application. Oh, I'm so offended. <laughs> loosened its application and... And it's also used um, in a slightly wider context to people regarded by someone as underclass. But the fashionable word for people, the people of, regarded as being of low class can be called pikeys, but they're also known as chavs living on the cheap. And recently, the Editorial Standards Committee of the BBC ruled that the word pikey was in permissible use in a context where it clearly meant a disadvantaged lower income lifestyle but that it had no inference at all referring to gypsies travelers or people of no fixed abode and before anybody asks i have to admit that the word chav which is quite well known in britain has absolutely no known origin it has been searched diligently it first occurred in the in the 21st century in the first decade british mass media referred to antisocial youth in britain it's in the oxford diction oxford english dictionary with the definition chav an informal British derogatory term meaning a young lower-class person who displays brash and loutish behaviour. So it's not an acronym. But the Oxford has had no success whatever in finding out where the word originated. Really? I thought it was an acronym. Of what? Council Housing Aggression Violence or something. Oh, well, perhaps you could suggest that to the Oxford Dictionary. I mean, they'd be very grateful. Yeah. No, seriously, um, I didn't know that there was... Did you just make that up, or mm. have you heard? Yes. Oh, no, 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 I, I, that was, it's received knowledge, but I don't know where from, so it could be completely freaking wrong. Well, I, one tends to regard recognised authorities like the Oxford English Dictionary, who have a huge staff of Oh, they, they do a fine job of running behind English and taking notes. Yes. 
Well, they couldn't find anything about Chav. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, take, I'll, I'll take the Oxford Dictionary. So word that's for the it. end of Pikey. For that, All right, that okay. Uh, we'll take a short break when we return. Max Cryer mm. will explore the origins of proprietor of a restaurant. Is it hung or is it hanged? And where and when and who? And a do as in a function. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Here he is, Max, uh, for part two uh, for this Saturday. The proprietor of a restaurant. I don't know any more detail. That's all I've got written down. What? What? Well, well, sir, what? Someone, Old man, what? Has someone contacted us asking why it was incorrect? Uh, the person had been told that it was incorrect to call the person who's a proprietor of a restaurant should not be called a restaurateur. So, you know, come on, Max, let's look into this. So here we go. Oh, really? Well, whoever told you that, I'm afraid, is quite right. It is 100% normal to use a word for an activity and a, and a slightly adjusted word for the person who is involved in the activity. We do it all the time. Building, builder, teaching, teacher, acting, actor, announcing, announcer. And the same rule often applied when the, when the word is French. And the word restaurant is definitely French. The French word is derived from the Latin restaure, meaning to renew. And when it came into use in France and was connected with food, it became restaurant, meaning restoring, the present participle, restoring. So a restaurant was a place where the hungry came to obtain what they need, food to restore them. And the word travelled into English with exactly the same meaning, but the last three letters, A-N-T, which survived from the French, and the English equivalent is, is exactly the same, I-N-G, same thing, ing. So a restaurant is a place of restoring. But in the original French and in English, a different word is needed to describe the person in charge. In French, that person is a restaurateur. The person who operates and deals with the restoring. And there's no N in there. There's no N in there. So that correctly, a restaurant offering food, restoring you, is owned and run by a restaurateur. It is true that some American sources defy the history of original words. They make up their own rules and they say a restaurant-er pointing out that E-U-R in French sometimes indicates that you're changing a verb into a noun. So, you will sometimes hear a person mistakenly refer to a restaurateur, but if you prefer to acknowledge the word's true origin and status, and say it correctly... Status? Status. You'll... Well, the man who, who owns it has a higher status than the, the waiters and the cooks and everything. So All right. He is the boss. So, if you prefer to acknowledge the word's origin and its status... You will say that a restaurant is run by a restaurateur. Right. I can see why people would say restauranter. It's like trucker. You've got a truck. <laughs> That's what you do. You is get it? in your truck and you truck away. <laughs> what are you? You're a trucker. This person gets in a restaurant, restaurants away, he's a restauranter. Well, he owns it and right. organises it and decides it. And mm. All right. This is a bugbear for many. It gets swapped around all over the place. Is it hung or hanged as a man? I've always thought it was man was hanged 
and you hung meat on a hook. Well, that's exactly what the listener wrote, uh, hanged or hung. Last week I spoke about the messy death of Guido Fawkes, mm. and I've been chided by a listener whose mother had taught her that when speaking of people, the correct word was to say they were hanged, and that only meat in the butchers was hung. Well, in terms of long-standing connection, mother was right. There was and still is a convention that although the past participle of hang is hung, it's not incorrect to say that somebody was hanged instead of saying that they were hung. It's a convention and it dates back hundreds of years when the two words hanged and hung were used interchangeably. But over time, the past tense hung began to widen to include anything which was placed in a suspended position. But hanged started to limit its use to when referring to the death of a person by their being by them hanging. And Part of the word's durability, which survives to this day, was that judges in courts giving out a death sentence seemed to prefer the more emphatic sound of the word hanged, thus leaving no doubt about what was to happen. So, hanged... It's nice to have a difference. Well, um, it, it, it exists far less frequently than it used to. Mm. Hanged and hung were used interchangeably for hundreds of years, although over time hung eventually became the more common one. Hanged retained its position when referred to death by hanging. And this was thought to be favoured by judges when they were passing a sentence because it made more of an impact. Now, over time, the entire practice of death sentence by hanging became less and less. In New Zealand, for instance, there were over 85 hangings as a death penalty up to 1957. Mm. And four years later, in 1961, New Zealand abolished the death penalty altogether. So, except in referring to historic incidents or fictitious scenarios in this country, there's really been no circumstances to use the word hanged since then. Now, the Oxford Dictionary, which is a main source of, of reputation, the Oxford Dictionary accepts that the use of hanged does exist and it doesn't designate that it as incorrect, although Oxford does categorise it as archaic. The word is of ancient uh, use and it's no longer heard much because people aren't getting hanged very much. So the listener's mother was not wrong, but she was obeying a convention rather than a rule. Death by hanging is occurring or being referred to far less now than in times past, so the choice between the two words doesn't often arise. But there's no question that anything or anyone is, is not actually incorrect to use the word hung. In the abattoirs, shorted cattle are hung, curtains are hung, pictures are hung, and a person suspended by a rope round their neck who has a trapdoor they're standing on flung open is certainly going to be dead in a few seconds later. The body is then dead and swinging on a rope round the neck, and yes, it would be somehow less abrasive to say that they had been hanged but it's an ancient convention. It can't be considered wrong. Hanged cannot be considered wrong. But in practical, straightforward terms, a dead person hanging with a rope around their neck has, has been hung. So when the matter crops up and there's no 100% rule, whichever word you decide to use, the result is not a hanging offence. Ah, you're off the hook. Well, <laughs> I haven't been literally. I have never. I haven't been hung or hanged. Yeah. Well, there's another use of hung, uh, which is specific, and uh, we shan't blanch. This is a Victorian 
times. If someone has, like Iggy Pop, substantial external reproductive gonadial parts, they're called well-hung. Yes, indeed, but not well-hanged. No, you would never no. say Iggy Pop was well-hanged. You would say he was well hung. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, that, that hung gets a lot more use than the word hanged. But I, I do, as I have tried to point out, the listener's mother wasn't wrong. Yeah. But she was obeying a very stern convention rather than an actual rule. One I've tried to uh, follow uh, because I like the, the fact that there are two words that mean a thing. It's like a sharper tool. Yes. and it, Another tool. It really, the, the, the prevalent use of it was really believed to be because judges, when they were giving out a verdict, mm. made a sort of theatrical moment when they said, and he shall be hanged by the neck until he is dead. All right. It actually didn't apply to, um, to Guido Fawkes because he jumped off the balcony. Or fell. Yeah, we don't. Well, was no, he pushed it? Did he fall? Well, there was nobody there to push no, it. No, it was. It was. If he did jump, it was a damn good decision. I think he saw what had happened to the others. It's not he pretty. Did, yes, not, not pretty at all. It's called being drawn and quartered. That's not Blah. nice. <laughs> Why were they so mean? Anyway, um, now a do, meaning a function. Yes, yes, this is fascinating. Why is a gathering, somebody says, why is a gathering often called a do? You get this a lot in cryptic crosswords. Do you really? Yeah. Well, it's a fairly frequently in use. A do can refer to a social gathering of various sizes, a big do, a small do. It's usually festive, a family member graduating, an engagement, somebody returning from a long time overseas. At one time, when they still existed, it could have celebrated for a 21st birthday. Now, a gathering after a funeral would not normally be called a do. I don't think, I'm, I'm willing to be told I'm wrong, but I think the do is usually festive, yeah. not funeral. There is no known logical explanation of why a social function is called a do. The word do, as a verb or a noun, can be used in 18 different ways. It describes the speed of a car. What does it? What? What does it do? The washing up of dishes, styling hair, studying a certain subject, putting on a play, doing imitations, a campaign to initiate selling, being sent to prison for a term, etc., etc., and as a noun, doing time. Right. Yes. The cricket team had to. The cricket team had a do to celebrate their win. Ah, do as mm -hmm. a noun. This use has no authoritative background. It's classified as informal English. It's listed in formal dictionaries, such as the Oxford, as meaning, quote, an entertainment, which is fair enough, because that's what it is. And the usage has been in Britain for the last hundred years. But why? What is the logic behind the expression? Nobody knows. Mm. But we have an interesting anniversary, Graham. Do we? November the 17th. 97 years ago today, New Zealand had its first ever radio broadcast mixing speech and music and available to anyone who was able to receive. 1921, the New Zealand government had told physics professor Robert Jack of Dunedin that he was not allowed to broadcast the newfangled radio signal from Otago University in case music and speech interfered with radio communications which already existed but between ships and from one to one that existed for some time one to one greeting messages between individuals such as mayors communication with ships etc but not to the general public now professor Jack did not regard um, radio transmission to the public as being a danger. But the bureaucracy of the New Zealand Post Office did. They didn't like that at all. Eventually, with great reluctance, the profession was granted a permit to broadcast socially just once. 
from the Otago University's physics department and every item had to be submitted for approval in advance. So, on the 17th of November 1921, the first ever broadcast concert in New Zealand took place and the song Hello My Dearie was the song which hit the New Zealand airwaves that night and the Dunedin broadcast was heard as far away as Auckland. Now, one year later... What was the song? One year later, um, Hello My Dearie. A year later, Professor Jack founded the Otago Radio Station. Sorry, start again. Professor Jack founded the Otago Radio Association, which became the oldest broadcasting station in the Commonwealth and among the oldest in the world. Now, more or less forced into facing facts... In the Southern Hemisphere. The 1932 government conceived the first regulations governing radio broadcasting in New Zealand. Advertising, not allowed. Controversy, banned. And all broadcast material was to be of educative or entertainment nature. News lectures and useful information. And within a year, those rules, 11 radio stations had started up. Now, from then until now, a curious thing has happened. The number of actual radio stations in New Zealand is incalculable. It is so, the, the number is so high that you really can't put a figure on it. A recent survey showed that listenership to commercial stations, just commercial stations, has grown to 3,300,000 people a year. And then in, in addition to that, there is the national program and the concert program who have not been categorised. So it all started 97 years ago today when radio went to the public. Far out. Maybe ham radio will come back. I think there still are ham radio people. Yes, I think I've vaguely heard. Mm, yeah. Oh, just a thing on Hung or Hanged. Heard an interesting story from Sam Hunt Oh, this week. Went and had a chat with him. He's going to be reading us a... Some of his favourite poems, not written by him. Oh, yeah. poems he likes. Yeah, and explains vaguely why. Uh, but the story was about his dad. His dad was m like 60, I think, when around about 60 when uh, Sam was born. That's kind of by the by, but he was a lawyer, and Sam told me the story of how his father had got this guy off an offence, a serious offence, a murder, I think it was, because his dad was a lawyer. And apparently his dad said, oh, you know, he did it. And if he had been convicted, uh, would have been the last man hanged in New Zealand. Oh. Yeah, but wasn't, because he got off the hanging anyway. All right, that'll be tomorrow night. Read me a poem with Sam Hunt, who's a hell of a lot of fun. That'll be around about 10.30. Max, thank you very much.